Welcome back to the summer series of Not Too Busy to Write. I'm Penny Windsor, author and nonfiction book coach. Today we're revisiting my conversation with novelist Evie Wilde. Evie is the author of three novels, the latest of which is Stella Prize winning The Bass Rock, which we discuss in this episode. It's out in paperback now. We talk about what it was like writing a novel about male violence against the backdrop of the Me Too movement, and also what it was like for Evie speaking and promoting that book during a year of highly publicized male violence against women. We also talk about the impact that winning a major literary prize can have on your writing career. Don't forget, if you would like a place on my upcoming nonfiction book proposal group this autumn, then do sign up to the waitlist at pennywinzerwrites.com. The link is in the show notes. Enjoy the episode. Evie, thank you so much for being with me today. Thanks for having me. Um, well, let's talk about the Bass Rock first. Um, it's a really chilling and, and quite gothic novel um, about male violence, but also about female friendship. Um, it's uh, across three timelines centering around the Bass Rock, which is in North Berwick in Scotland. Um, and it's interesting, I've been um, rereading, actually listening on audio um, to it in the last couple of weeks. And as we're recording, it's it's been a really, really difficult time. Um, we're both in London um, and, you know, just this year and in, even in the last few weeks, actually, you know, two young women have been um, murdered just simply walking home. Um, and I was just wondering, in a way, what has it been like for you this year, presumably, especially because of the Stella Prize, talking about the Bass Rock and um, and talking about male violence in in the year that we've had here in London. Mm, it's funny. It's like um, obviously I wrote the book long before um, Sarah Everard or Sabina Nessa or the I think seventy three women who've been killed since. I think Sarah it might be Everard. eight and maybe even eighty. Yeah. Christ. Um, so. It's quite strange to have a book that feels a bit sort of prescient. Um, I mean, I was I was about three quarters of the way write, through writing it when um, the Me Too movement happened, and suddenly, like, I was in a weird situation where, for the first time in my life, I seemed to be writing about something that was, you know, had some actual bearing in of real life. I'm normally much more into nostalgia and monsters and stuff like that so it was quite strange um but at the same time there was so much more information you know you kind of these these huge kind of um dialogues opening up between women um and you know in a very kind of um personal way just with my own friends, my own female friends, I was amazed by the amount of stories that I didn't already know about my close female friends, that some of some of them that were kind of unearthed by everybody else's trauma, this collective kind of vibrating thing that was happening. Um, and a lot of stuff that I don't think we would have classed as abuse at the time, we just would have passed, we would just sort of said, well, that made me feel really uncomfortable. And I occasionally think back to it and it gives me a physical jolt. And, but that's just part of being, uh, of living in a, a female body. Um, so, yeah, it was, 
it was eye-opening, I would say. Mm-hmm. And it and it's been very strange to normally you write a novel, you talk about it for six months, and then you're very much in the headspace of the next one. And this one, I mean, I think my first two novels kind of were circling the same subjects. You know, the first one is about um Australian masculinity and the second one's about a woman who is living on her own with past trauma. And this one feels maybe what those two were leading up to. Um, Mm -hmm. So I suppose that might be another reason that I'm still in its headspace, but I think it just feels so relevant right now. It feels so relevant and to the point where I just, I want everyone to read it. I want to put it in everyone's hands. You know, I just felt, and I think you using the word vibrating feels so right for how it felt to read it. It does feel like the book vibrates with violence and it's um, not even so much the physical violence that's in there and there is some in there, but it was, it's more the, um, it's almost like the reminder that as a woman, there is the threat, the constant threat of violence. And even in where there's just some scenes that are not even the worst things that happened, but in some ways are more terrifying. Um, I'm thinking particularly in the scene, uh, one of the contemporary scenes with Vivian and her sister running for a train to run Mm. away from a boyfriend that her sister has just left. Mm. And and it's not the most difficult thing that happens in the book to a woman, but Mm. it's something really frightening about how how familiar that feels mm, and that yeah. feeling is, as Vivian says to herself afterwards, I can't believe we just stood there and waited for him. Yeah. Um, and that this is, and that this is how we have always behaved as women um, because of the threat that's there. Mm. And I think also because we are taught from a very, very young age, not to trust our instincts and um, to do anything um, that would make a man feel uncomfortable or rejected or embarrassed. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a script for The Battle Rock at the moment, um, and um, which I'm not really allowed to talk about, but one of the things that I can say is that I can, like, one of the nice things about writing a script is you get to go into different areas of the book mm. in, in the novel. And one of the small violences um, that interests me is this thing of of men asking a woman what she's reading, a woman that they don't know. And, you know, it happens to all of us multiple times in our life. You know, you're on the tube and you're in a book and somebody snaps you out of your, you know, fictional dream or whatever you want to call it. And suddenly you're there and you're faced with having to negotiate a conversation that what you want to say is, can you leave me alone? I would like to read my book as I'm clearly reading my book. I don't want to explain to you the book and um, hear your thoughts on, you know, what what I should be reading and uh, and then eventually give you my number or fake, you know, all of that kind of um, facade that we have to do in order to keep men happy because the alternative can go very, very wrong. And, you know, we've all been in a situation where we've kind of got to our limit of how much we can um pander to it mm-hmm. and we said look can you just leave me alone please and then it's like oh my who do you think you are you know I'm just trying to be friendly how am I supposed to meet people you know all this kind of rhetoric of um 
women holding all the power and wielding it um that I don't know I think that it's such a it's such a marker of um of a person comfortably um kind of skewering somebody's quiet reflective time because because they, they can might get sex out of it yeah <laughs> um, yeah and because yeah. it's no threat to them Mm. you know it's like there's no loss to them um, oh. yeah yeah no I I completely see what you mean and I think in a way you know for instance I th- I think you know um also the the complicity that you see throughout the book from everybody and mm-hmm. not everybody but so many people within the social circles and um you know so just briefly the three different timelines um that it that it's on it's Ruth in the 1950s who's newly married and has two stepchildren and it's become very apparent that she's been married because it's convenient to a new husband um Vivian who's in the present day um and uh who's who's recently released from a ment- some kind of mental health institute mm-hmm. and uh and is very much grieving for her father and has been sent up to North Berwick to uh, give her the job of packing up the old family home and Sarah in the 1700s who has been accused of witchcraft and is is running for her life um but even throughout that there are other little vignettes of other stories that are all kind of connected by place um but it's that complicity of of everybody around those characters mm-hmm. that to me is the thing that's really chilling you know the way that um that father brown is kind of respected within the community um, and and all of his actions, um, which are terrifying, quite frankly, you know how they're all upheld by this community, um, and you know how this idea that um, that you know nothing that any of the men do on the surface, nobody nobody questions it at first, nobody thinks it's very bad, except of course wonderful Maggie, who uh, likes to point things out, who I absolutely adored in the in the in the contemporary storyline. Um, she was absolutely brilliant. But um, the Bass Rock itself, I, I was really curious when I was reading it, wh- which came first? Was it the location for you or was it one of the characters? What what began putting these women in this one place? I do tend to start with place. I feel like um, place gives you the atmosphere kind of ready-made and, you know, I'm always going to write something that's moving towards horror or thriller or whatever but I think it just has got such a dramatic such a dramatic coastline and there's also something lovely about the fact that it's really wild and Mm. you know it's a very smelly rock it's got a huge um it's got the biggest colony of gannets and seabirds in the world um and there's tar on the beach and there were oil spills when I was like, like it's really sort of beautiful but wild and grubby sometimes and then it's been like carpeted over with a golf course um <laughs> and it's that sort of um for me it's always even in the summer when it's warm it's always got that slightly out of season holiday um kind of feel to it when I was a kid, there was an outdoor swimming pool. And, you know, throughout the winter, people studiously, like, <laughs> going through it and um, and everybody standing around in woolen jumpers watching them. <laughs> it just, it just, it's an intense, it's an intense 
place for weather and sort of wind and smells and things. So, yeah, I think the um, place does always come first. But the other thing that was going on when I started to write it is that I had a newborn. And so I was like scrabbling for time. Um, I was writing while he was asleep um, during his naps. And I only really write well during the day and in the morning. So I get him down for his first nap by like wheeling him up and down the south bank and just like willing him to go to sleep and rocking around or or like feeding him to sleep on a bench um, in the winter. And then I'd go into like the um, the Royal Festival Hall or somewhere and just spend an hour writing. And so that I think contributed to all the different timelines or and the kind of the vignettes of you know the body count probably because I was um just writing about what was at front of my brain at that moment because I didn't have time to think you know what am I gonna I, I couldn't like tootle around like I did before and like imagine what I might want to write about and where it would fit within the rest of the story and that sort of thing it was just like I've got to write something whatever it is you know yeah. And you know, what's funny is that I didn't know that you had a newborn when you were writing it, but it does not surprise me in the least mm-hmm. now that you say it. And that, yeah. that might sound really strange, but, <laughs> but there is a sort of underlying, I guess, madness in mm-hmm. the book, which is just below the surface, which I think is so, you feel, I felt so close to having newborns and, mm-hmm. and perhaps it's the, combination of the lack of sleep and the complete switch around in um in timetables and and your complete change in identity um uh, and all of those things there's a slight madness to that time and you can you can feel it in the bass rock in that sense and um I mean that in a really good way (laughs) by the way (laughs) um because there's just something under the surface simmering away the whole time that it's um that's so familiar and it's not just the the familiar feeling that a lot of these women are going through under these threats but um but yeah no so that doesn't surprise me in the least but interesting so you do think perhaps then um being a mother has it, it sort of necessitated change in your approach to the writing and then therefore the style that the book came out oh, yeah I think so um and I also think I think the pandemic has also changed how I write mm-hmm. obviously I'd finished the best rock before then but I've noticed that what the pandemic did was it it shortened my attention span because I was like constantly scanning for news stories on my phone and then I would you know if I got 300 words um, into something without kind of stopping and checking something, that would be a real win. So so it's definitely, um, when I look back at how I wrote the first book, which was sustained mornings of, you know, at least a thousand words um, a day. And now I'm like, you know, who knows? Like maybe in a week I'll get 500 words done um so yeah I think and and I don't know if it's good or bad really I think um you're always changing as a writer because every book teaches you to write that book mm. and nothing else but you know I feel like as I go along I'm 
my main the main thing that I want to do is to tell a story in as few words as possible um and when I look back at my first books I'm like oh it seems very flowery and and like there's too many words and I would go you know I'd go through all of them with a red pen immediately having published something I want to like scrap huge parts of it but um but yeah I think um I think not having having a responsibility uh, that I've always really valued time spent on my own whether I was working or not just like fanning about and your fanning about time is greatly reduced (laughs) so um and even if you've got like you know even if the kids at school you've got that stop and start yeah feeling whereas before it was this kind of like you know if I wake up at three in the morning I could get up and work whereas if I wake up at three in the morning now it's like if I get out of bed I'll wake people up and you know and that will be a nightmare um so yeah I think that I think the freedom goes but I don't know I don't know it might actually be a helpful thing having that um pressure yeah I think it's a give and take almost isn't it um and I agree I don't think it's a right or a wrong thing or a good or a bad thing it's Mm. just um it's almost like an exchange (laughs) of something for another um and yeah it's interesting that we have I think this idea don't we that um that that you know you find your way of working and you stick with it without mm. any regard for the fact that particularly for women our lives change quite dramatically mm. over our lifetimes mm. and for men too um but i think particularly for women um yeah so this idea that we can allow the changes in our lives to change the way we write um but i wanted to ask you another thing about the style the um the different uh, vignettes i was really curious about um the timeline, uh, the earliest timeline, favorite mm. timeline, in the first person from a male perspective. Mm. Um, and was that always your intention or was that something that just came out when you started writing about her? Or? Well, I think there's, um, I think, no, in the, the very first time I wrote about Sarah, she was a totally different person. She was a lot older um, and she, it was much more, she was like a practicing witch and and there was a lot more kind of supernatural kind of stuff going on there. Whereas now it's quite straightforward. It's like, she's just a woman who's wandered into a bad social situation and therefore she must be killed. Um, so, um, you know, there's a practical thing, which is how do you make the voices different, um, different enough that you immediately are in that world. Um, and then I think there's also, you know, I had a son. And so for me, there is, it is important to see how this happens to mm. boys, how a boy turns into a man and what that means and what the pressures are. Um, and and to be sympathetic to that as well. Um, so, yeah, I think that, that ended up being like, you know, it started off as me just playing and seeing what worked with it, with the other two voices. But um, it it came to mean more, I think, the more that I wrote Joseph's voice Mm. Um, and the things that he worries about and his, you know, the big moments of um, the choices he has to make 
Um, and yeah, and you know, sort of a boy who is um, without all the, the stuff that we have now that we know affects boys so much, like pornography and just the, you know, the, the sort of misogynist air that they breathe with mm. marketing and, um, but just seeing how that's handed down yeah. through generations, really. And that was also so vividly done with the two boys, Ruth's two step boys as well in the 1950s timeline, um, who then, you know, we we go on to discover, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that, you know, that, that um, Vivian's father and, and uncle are uh, Ruth's step boys. And, and the things that happen to them and and how that goes on to feed and how it's all feeding each other and it's all getting into each other and how and how it's destroying boys and men yeah. as yeah. well as women. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that was I quite often it gets said about my book that um all of the men are monsters in it, which it's not is, at all. I mean, there is a couple there of really horrible ones. Adams. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> consider Dick might consider um bad apples but um they are um the the two boys in particular are you know harmed emotionally and physically yeah very their response to that isn't to become um you know misogynist pricks but it is to implode basically they yeah. um I mean I think you look at the the suicide numbers um, and you know men are killing themselves at an astonishing rate mm. and it's about that um warding down of emotion and what society tells men they're allowed to show and um yeah I think I think that was really important to me that it even some of the probably not I think John Brown is is kind of a a mad sort of horrible man based on um based on people that my father met at his time at boarding school and the church and stuff like that um so that was really me kind of um getting my own back yeah (laughs) um so but I think the other boys for the most part are are responding to um to society and um and this awful situation of sending your children away at age eight to become men um it sort of turns your stomach um it does and also that complete um you know acknowledgement by their father that that yeah. was exactly what he went through yeah it was exactly what the, he expected them to go through yeah. you knowing it's not even done you know not even trying to turn a blind eye to it. There is something in, in, um, in sort of the words we use around parenting, like, you know, oh, it never did me any harm. And you're just like, uh, you are deeply harmed. (laughs) (laughs) You're alive, but you know, there, there is, um, or, the, or at least that, I mean, I think there still is, but there, there was a much stronger drive that, you know, this was what was done to me and that is therefore what will be done to you because, you know, that's the done thing, especially in British kind of upper middle class um, where you have to do the thing that embarrasses the least people. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then to bring it back to the women in the novel and the friendships, um, the friendship between Vivian and Maggie was so interesting. It was so interesting to me. And and Maggie sort of sort of sweeps into her life. Um, she's so different to everybody else in the book. Uh, she's almost standing, in fact, standing completely on her own compared to all of the other women in the book. Um, She's uh, she's a sex worker. She's working class. She's sort of the antithesis of a lot of the other characters in the book mm. who are all very middle class and upper middle class. Um, and I just um, I just loved her for a start. Um, but also it was just interesting to me um, this idea that you know within these female friendships, like the the point at which they met, which is very much as strangers, like in a car park, and mm. how that those kind of friendships between men and women are completely impossible in a way mm. because there is too much threat between men yeah. and women. But um, Maggie, with all of her um, very interesting, colourful nature, is quite immediately, I felt quite soon, not a threat at all to Vivian. Mm. Mm. Um, and that was really an interesting contrast to me to, well, mm. I guess, all of the other dynamics in the book. I think in um, in that strand, I was really interested in looking at like rom-coms and, you know, the tropes that you expect in a rom-com. So Maggie is like a pixie dream girl, really. Mm. Um, and she's quite, um, Viv finds her quite irritating a lot of the time. You know, she asks what she does for a living and Maggie's like, I'm a witch. And it's like, you know, if you met that in real life, you'd be like, oh, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um but she said she she acts on her intuition mm. and that is who she is she's like a she's somebody who is in touch with um her own innate witchiness you know the the inherited trauma that you know women pass down and becomes like a sixth sense where you know we know when somebody is in our peripheral vision and they're a threat. Uh, we know we know the difference of the difference between someone who could be a threat and somebody who definitely is just in the way that they're standing next to us. Um, and she is in tune with that, and and that's how she lives her life. Um, so she's quite um, she's quite she would be a difficult person to be, I think, like quite yes. hard work to live like yeah. that. Um, but the other thing in that, uh, in that strand that I wanted to look at is how in a rom-com you'll have a, a single woman um, and, and they will more often than not, not be living up to what we are saying of the successful things that a woman should be when she's a certain age, which, you know, um, Viv doesn't have a career or a partner or a child. And, you know, in, in rom-coms, it might be like, oh, they really work very, very hard and they wear a power suit and they get a bit stressed and, you know, they're not getting promoted how they should be. There's a, there's a sort of like, she's got a stick up her ass kind of. Yeah. And then a farting um, sort of slightly overweight drug smoking man will come along and, and, chill around a bit yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so like I have um, Vincent who appears and is kind of like comedy and loud and um you know obnoxious but 
in a way that I think on screen would be read as charming. Um, mm. And one of the, again, you know, I don't know how much of a spoiler this is, but one of the most satisfying things that I did in the book was just at some point for Viv just to go, no, I don't want that actually. And it's not a big dramatic thing. There's no big misunderstanding. He doesn't break a heart. He doesn't cheat on her. It wasn't a bet. You know, there's no, you don't get that bit that you get in a rom-com where yeah. it's, there's this huge misunderstanding. And then by the end, she has helped him to become his best self and she's calmed down a bit. Um, and instead it was just like, <laughs> yeah. it was just her going, no, no, I'm fine. And um, that's it. And then you don't yeah. again. And, and that was so satisfying to write. I can't tell you. <laughs> yeah, no, I can really see it now that you're saying it that way. It makes so much sense. This idea of like, there always has to be this um, improvement, right? This this self-improvement that has to happen in women in, in many genres of literature. Um, and it's exhausting, quite frankly. <laughs> you know, how, how, how much we have to improve ourselves um, in order to satisfy the, the narrative tropes. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I really... Um, I really enjoyed that. And I also enjoyed the fact as well that he just, he wasn't an awful guy. He wasn't, um, he was a bit odd. He was quite interesting in a kind of odd way. Mm. But he's, he also did provide a bit of relief from mm. some of the more menacing characters in the book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which was nice. But, um, so um, I wanted to also just ask you a little bit about what this has been like for you this year. Um, I'm sure a lot of people would be really curious about when, um, and each of your books have has won or been shortlisted and longlisted for quite a major prize, but what is it to, to win something like a stellar prize um, and to have attention more attention put on a book? And, and does it change anything for you as it has it changed anything for you as a writer in real terms? I think um, the stellar in particular, um, is kind of feels like a standout prize from from the ones that I've been nominated for before because it um, partly because of the time that I won it you know after homeschooling and not <laughs> writing for a long time and not reading for a long time because there was just no headspace for it winning that prize suddenly kind of shone a light on female work in a way that felt incredibly satisfying and such a relief as well um having kind of you know beavered away for a year and a half um doing nothing that interested me you know I mean teaching my son to read was nice in its in its way but um it it's not what I am built for um so I think uh on a emotional level it really strongly um, impacted me and um, and made me think that I think at the beginning of the pandemic, I kind of like my my book came out a week before the first lockdown, and I thought, okay, well, novel writing probably won't exist after this anyway, so that's fine. <laughs> um, but um, there was a definite feeling of things drifting away, and, and it really brought it back to me and, and got me writing again really 
Oh, well, um, well that's think, incredible on its own, isn't it? I mean, yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think on a practical level, the Stella is unlike other prizes in that you get some, um, you know, sorry to be gauche, but you get some money just for being long-listed and for being shortlisted. Oh, you get money for long-lists and shortlists. Yeah, which is honestly, you know, for writers' life-saving. Yeah, that um, is incredible. Especially after a year when you've made no money from writing at all. Um, and and then you are the, um, you're paid for any events um, that you do surrounding it, which is really, you know, it really acknowledges that it's work. Yeah. Um, which is what I love about it. And the um, the people who set up the Stella Prize are so conscious of the fact that as women, we have got other commitments as well. Mm. And they're like, you know, if any of these events or interviews or whatever, or any of these requests get too much, let us know and we'll do that. And, you know, that's not how prizes traditionally work. It's like, you need to be here, 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 here and here in order to have this prize money yeah and you've um, got to be grateful for it quite yeah time. absolutely and, and like you know you are but then also you're like you know I have to get back and pick the kids up <laughs> yeah. oh well that's really wonderful to hear actually about that prize I mean I knew that the prize money is very it's very decent substantial prize money mm. for the winner but that's great to hear that they also pay okay. the long list and the short list that's really fantastic I really hope that's something that is starts to be replicated across the board but mm-hmm. um but yeah no that's really fantastic but I mean I would I also wanted to check with you as well because you're you part own review in in um Peckham and and this has obviously been a really quite incredibly difficult and up you know a huge upheaval the last 18 months mm. but I think perhaps bookshops have been um, affected in a really interesting way you know a lot of people are reading and I, I see a lot of people really consciously trying to support their local bookshops but yeah. what has it been like in real terms for booksellers um I think year and a half I'm not behind the till anymore but I you know um I live down the road from the bookshop so I I pop in there and get in the way um <laughs> a couple of times a week um but you know I, it's been hard it's been um more work for the people behind the tills because you know for instance we have we have four people allowed in at a time now but for a while it was one person at a time and you know, while we were completely closed obviously but um that means that you are constantly um on your feet guiding someone through because you know the, the sort of point of our bookshop is that we're small and it's a curated collection of books and it's about hand selling and mm-hmm. so um, normally you would just let people browse until they asked for help because we didn't want people touching the books too much and uh, we wanted them in and out as quickly as possible. It was like every customer was like a guided tour of the bookshop. Wow, yeah. So I think for um, Katia, who's, who's since left and started up a wonderful bookshop in Glasgow called um, Mount Florida, um, and for Ben, who is in the shop now, it's been mentally really challenging mm. because there's so much more of like game face that you need to use. You know, yes. there's, there's no lull around lunchtime. It's just a steady trickle. Um, and presumably but, quite difficult to get on with other aspects of running the bookshop at the same time. Yeah, yeah you'd ordinarily be doing, you know, three quarters of the bookshop admin while it was quiet. 
and and now that mm. all has to happen when the shops closed. So um, yeah, exhausting, I think, and I'm thrilled not to have to have done it. <laughs> but I can see that it, it really has taken a toll. Um, but they've done fantastically well. Good. Excellent. It's good to hear. And it's a good reminder to everybody to make sure they do go and visit their local independent bookshops now that we can. Um, Well, thank you so much uh, for being with me here today um, and talking about the Bass Rock. Um, And just Ali and I usually always finish on on just something we've been reading lately that's really caught your interest that you've really liked. I've just read, I mean, I don't know how helpful this is because it's not out yet, but I've just read Hannah Kent's new book, Devotion, and it's absolutely incredible and stunning I think over here it's out in the UK I think it's out in February so it's a bit of a wait but um, a bit of a wait but I'll I, if there's a pre-order link I will pop, pop yeah, that in the show notes it's so good so good excellent oh well I recently uh went back and read because I heard somebody talking about the podcast and I just I hadn't read it and I really wanted to go back and read it, it was um Meg Wallitz's The Interestings And I just really enjoyed it so much. This idea of, uh, you know, following a group of friends from their teenage years right up until I think um, perhaps their late 40s or early 50s or so, um, and the dynamics within a friendship um, Mm. and how they change over time and the class differences within that and how that changes as people um, move on and get certain kinds of careers uh, Mm. and there's disparity in earnings and the jealousies that underline that. But there's also this undercurrent as well of, um, of again, of, um, you know, somebody, you know, committing violence against a woman and whether or not he's believed or she's believed and all of these kind of different dynamics going on. It was just incredible. And I, yeah, loved it. It was one of those proper epics. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. yeah so that was really great. Well, um, thank you so much for being here. 